Welcome back to another episode of the Best Minutes Podcast. Each week, Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1946 William Wyler-directed film, The Best Years of Our Lives, one minute of screen time per episode. I'm Josh Horowitz from 5 Minutes of Trouble, 5 Minutes of Bonsai, 12 Chimes, It's Midnight, and other things. And my co-host, rounding out the week once again, your friend and mine, Mr. Brett Stillo. Welcome back. Thank you, Josh. We are friends. Oh, we want absolutely. everyone to know that this is this is not one of those phony, ha-ha kind of <laughs> uh, on-the-air relationships. We are pals. Yeah, we, we've and, shared a drink together in San Francisco. and Yeah. Um, and we will again. Yes. We will again. So I hope you're all doing well out there. I'm happy to be back. It's Friday. Yes, TGIF. it is. Welcome. And uh, we have another special guest with us today. We do. We have a very special guest. This is a friend and colleague of mine uh, from the SAG After a Radio Players Committee. I welcome Mr. David Westberg. Welcome, David. Greetings. Thank you very much. Welcome back to you. Yeah. Well, thanks for being here. I mean, I... I've told David and, and many of my other union members about how I've done, uh, you know, different podcasts over the years. I've actually uh, had the chance of kind of teaching other people about how this is done. Uh, but this is the first time that uh, that I'm able to get David to uh, to join and, and experience just what it's like. So I'm, I'm glad that you're here. And thank you for the invitation. Yeah. And, and what a film to discuss, too. Uh, you know, the, the uh, best years of our lives. This is one that... I hadn't even really heard about prior to being asked to uh, to help out with this show. Uh, but were you a lot more familiar with this film? I was. Um, I'd seen it years ago. Um, I'm also a um, veteran of another war. Mm-hmm. So I've been um, drawn to those kind of movies through the years. Mm. And this is one of the uh, outstanding examples. Oh yeah, no, this is one that uh, that won many Academy Awards the year it was uh, out, nineteen forty-seven, I believe. Uh, but I, I am very interested in hearing about uh, your experiences and your stories that you have from uh, the time that that you were in service, which I, I assume is is uh, the Vietnam era you know, during the sixties, yes. right? Yeah, uh, there there is quite a bit of. Uh, parallels i think even from a film from the 1940s you know just just coming back from a war and and getting into civilian life and and how that affects people so uh yeah very it takes an adjustment um the interesting thing is that in 1946 1947 um they called it something different Uh, now we would call it ptsd right um which came about in the 70s after the vietnam war Hmm. um in those days, they called it, um, they were either war-weary hmm. or they were um, battle fatigue, huh. which really minimizes the whole psychological drama that um, a veteran goes through. Hmm. And some, indeed, uh, never make the adjustment. Right. I, I love this one minute that we're looking at because it uh, really turns out to show... Um, the most severely disabled of the three guys um, to indeed be the true hero of the film. Yeah. Yeah, no. Interesting. I guess during World War One, they would call it shell-shocked. I don't know if they still continue to use that term beyond the First World War, but but interesting that they 
they, they kind of downplayed it a bit. I, I wonder if part of that was because they were kind of ashamed to admit what they went through. Sure. Huh. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's interesting that, you know, in these ensuing wars over the generations, they're, they're trying to find the right term or the right way to say it. And yeah, battle fatigue doesn't quite cut it, but it sounds way better than shell shock, which <laughs> <Yeah>. is... <laughs> You know, that, that's, that just looks like a screaming headline on a comic book or something, mm. shell shock. Right. And, um, but yeah, but then in the 70s, it's finally identified PTSD. It's, and it's far more clinical. Hmm. I mean, bat, yeah, battle fatigue, just that just sounds like something you write on a form. Huh. Yes. You know, here's, here's your ticket. Yeah. And some people would call it Betty Fatigue. Fatigue. Huh. Battle Fatigue. 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 Oh, okay. Yeah, fatigue. Oh, yeah, I've had that before. Jeez. Oh, <laughs> well, let's uh, let's delve into this this minute here. We're talking about minute one thirty five of the film. Uh, minute one thirty five starts with a ham and cheese on whole wheat and ends <laughs> with plenty of guts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but this this is the scene where we sort of. Uh, I think by this time in the film, we're we're not as sort of shocked by the fact that that Homer has these hooks. If anything, this kind of shows his versatility with what he was able to do with those hooks. Uh, you know, I mean, he he does a pretty good job. You know, he's he's able to, you know, pick up the Sunday glass, eat it as if it were nothing, really. Uh, you know, I at the same time, you know, you you realize, of course, you know how much he has lost, you know, from all of this. And it's uh, it's not lost on Mr. Mollet too, who uh, who starts to comment on it. That's the guy in the suit sitting next to him. Also shows his sense of humor. Yes. About what has befallen him, befallen him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, despite all that, you know, you 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 kind of have to have a sense of humor to just be able to live, really, when you're in yeah. a situation like that. Yeah, I think it was an important coping mechanism. For the, I think in particular for the World War II guys, that was just a way to, you know, deal with everything that they had gone through. Hmm. To kind of, you know, is to find some humor, some way to laugh it off. This, this reminds me a little bit of my grandparents who were of this generation. They would have horrible stories, you know, as kids in the Depression, but they would always spin it as something funny. There was always a punchline to it. Uh-huh something to laugh about so i mean yeah there is something to be said for you know just if you can find the humor in any situation almost any situation uh you know if you can laugh it off it helps Hmm. now david in your experience so so you were in the navy uh did did you ever uh know anybody or hear stories about people who had been wounded to this extent uh somewhat Hmm. we had a couple of um we would work, I was on a destroyer. So most of our stuff was uh, handled uh, offshore. Oh, and we also made one trek uh, up one of the Vietnam rivers. Mm. Um, but we had uh, some Marines who did some uh, spotting for us mm. for shore bombardment. And they would come aboard. We would usually have them uh, aboard for a breakfast or a lunch at some point during the time we worked with them, uh, just to solidify the relationship a bit. 
And some of those guys would have had, um, you know, a shoulder puncture or something like that mm -hmm. um, by, mm -hmm. by enemy fire. Um, and we've uh, also, we were in, uh, we were in uh, close company with aircraft carriers and we would occasionally lose a, a plane over this, over the side, mm. especially in night ops. And uh, that was never fun. Yeah, no, that uh, was quite a time. And that was during the, so, so you were there over in the, was it the early 60s then? No, mid 60s. Mid 60s. Uh -huh. I, joined, I joined in 62 uh, in graduation from college. Uh -huh. As a matter of fact, on my 21st and a half birthday, uh, I received my draft notice, <laughs> which was precisely six months before I was to graduate from college. Uh. So I immediately uh, applied for a deferment mm -hmm. to finish college. I'd been in ROTC. Uh, I went to a land-grant college, Washington State University, mm. and I was in uh, the ROTC, uh, Air Force ROTC, and the Air Force came to me at the end of two years Um two years are required. And they came to me and said, um, we'll pay for the rest of your college and you give us four years for your life. And I said, okay, uh, let's do it. And so I got a physical. 2020, 2030 on this side, 2040 in this side, and you have to have 2020 to be a pilot. Right. And they said, okay, we'll take you, but you're not going to be a pilot. And I said, if I can't be a pilot, why the hell would I want to be in the Air Force? <laughs> so um, I left that. And then uh, when I got the draft notice, when I was home at Easter time, uh, I checked with what the Navy had. And I said, what have you got for a college graduate? And they said, uh, we'll send you to Officers Candidate School in Newport, Rhode Island. Hmm. And you can go uh, four months and then you give us um, three years of active and three years of reserve. And I said, sign me up. Hmm. So I joined. Now, did you have any actual flight experience before you, uh, you tried for the Air Force? No. All right. But you were, you were prepared, though, that you wanted to be a pilot originally. You betcha. Wow. Hmm. But you went into the Navy and you were on a destroyer. That's, uh, <laughs> yes. The whole time. Yeah. I never had a change of billet. I went to a couple schools. I picked my ship up in uh, Sasebo, Japan in August of 1963 and uh, was there until the end of my three years. Hmm. And then, so when when you got home then, and that's kind of how it relates to what, what we're seeing in this film. So what, what year was that? that was, was that 68? 67. 67. Okay. And what, what was the, the atmosphere uh, around servicemen you know, at that time? I mean, I, I know that, you know, some of the, the protests were happening probably near the end of the 60s, but like when you came back, was it, was it all just as bad? We knew that there was uh, a lot of resent, resentment to the war, mm -hmm. um, especially since, and I've only made this connection um, since that time, hmm. uh, there's a difference in uh, fighting a war after your own um, country has been uh, invaded or hmm. demolished yeah. or, you know, like 9-11 
or like Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. Um, we hadn't had that kind of uh, attack from Vietnam. So I guess Tet didn't count. Fact, <laughs> exactly. And, yeah. and we actually, we were home ported in Japan when I first picked up the ship. Mm-hmm. And a year and a half later, they sent us back to the States. And because we had been such good boys mm-hmm. uh, living in Yokosuka, Japan for two and a half years, they gave us a trip to Australia on the way home. Oh, wow. So we sailed to Australia and that was in the early part of August mm-hmm. of 1964. Mm. And while we were on our way to Australia, the Gulf of Tonkin incident happened, mm. which kind of introduced our way in. They attacked uh, American ships and it kind of fired off the war. Mm-hmm. I thought we would just be sent right back to Yakuska, but they <laughs> sent us back to San Diego, up to Bremerton uh, for four months. Mm for ship work and I was from Seattle. So it was like pulling deliberty in my own hometown. (laughs) And then we went back over for uh, the next almost year and a half um, before I got out. So it was, I mean, and it made a couple of trips to um, Mm -hmm. the vicinity of Vietnam in that time. Hmm. And you were assigned on the same ship during your, your whole term? Yes, sir. And what, and what was that destroyer, if I may ask? Um, it was the USS Shelton, hmm. DD-790. It was built in 1944. It was a, what's called a Forrester-class um, destroyer. We had, um, we carried nuclear weapons. Oh, wow. Uh, for ASROC. Yeah, we had the- Oh, that's crazy. Oh, kit and caboodle. Um, I was, I went aboard as communications officer and then I was CIC officer. And then I ended up, uh, for a year and a half being communicate, uh, operations officer. Huh. So I was a department head too. Nice. And it's, yeah, it's interesting that a lot of the, as, as they were called tin cans <clears throat> from that era. That's it. Yeah. They were, and you were on a, it's a world war II vessel that yeah. it's services extended into the sixties. So uh, you know, I'm sure it had, you know, it would have been in service at the end of the war, but, you know, 1945. So, you know, maybe some of those convoys on the way to Okinawa and Iwo Jima. So as, absolutely. Yeah. Hmm. Absolutely. Hmm. It's as a matter of fact, you can look it up under Wikipedia and it has the whole tour of what we did and when they decommissioned it and all that information. Hmm. It was, uh, it was fascinating. I saw two thirds of the world before I was 26 years old. Wow. Courtesy of the United States Navy, crossed the, wow. crossed the equator four times, um, stood on our bridge with the then Shah of Iran uh, oh. when he was in our good graces, huh. uh, as close as I was to um, you guys, um, Josh, when you and I were working together at, yeah. uh, at the radio thing. Hmm. So. Wow, the Shah. Um, it was, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they piped him aboard. Shah Iran arriving. <laughs> well, here, here I have a question for you, David. So when when you were out, um, now one of the things we see in this movie is that the uh, 
the, you know, the returning servicemen are, are, they tend to be wearing their uniforms, even though the war is over and, you know, they're in civilian life and stuff. How often did you ever wear your uniform when you were back or did you at all? I did a couple of times. Um, we knew that there was a lot of war protesting going on, but by the time I got back, I didn't understand that it was directed at the people who were doing the fighting. <laughs> we just thought it was the concept of being at war. Yeah. So I was going to San Francisco when I got back to see my brother and sister-in-law. And my sister-in-law made a big thing about you got to wear a uniform. Huh. So I was walking through the San Francisco airport upon arrival. Uh, you like this bread? <laughs> um, and um, I got spat on. Um, and so uh, I avoided that area. And then I got sucker punched. And so oh, I figured, mm, not a good uh, idea to wear the uniform or any advertisement of the United States Navy. Um, so I wore that a lot now, but um, I'm making up for lost time. That is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, that, that's the, you know, the, the Vietnam era. That's, that's the really bitter pill is, yeah, there's protests at home, but, it, you know, it's, it was the policymakers. Like, you guys were just there. Doing we're just following job. direction. We're just following you were, orders. You were drafted. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> And to to take it out on you directly is yeah I, I, was, I can't imagine, man. I just can't imagine. And then you say this is the country I just came home to from yeah. fighting mm -hmm. for. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Uh, I was I was living in San Francisco in uh, 1977. I was three. Uh, <laughs> we might have run into each other. But, yeah. Uh, possible but yeah sorry sorry about the airport that's okay okay i got over it <laughs> good good i learned but i got over it uh, yeah but uh here here's a, a another question so in this film we do see that even though uh some of these servicemen are in civilian clothes they, they do wear some sort of an identifying pin to let i, I guess the the public know that they were in service uh, yeah we still have them Okay, so so that was a thing. Did did you end up then wearing that pin? Uh, you know, when you got back in, in lieu of having the uniforms. No, I kind of swung entirely the other yeah. way. Hmm. Um, I do wear it now. Uh huh. Well, and I have people come up and comment on it. Yeah. Um, but I didn't. Uh, I didn't. Um, the whole thing really blew up at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago in '68. Hmm. Um, that Chicago was when, seven. That was that whole thing, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Hmm. So, um, and I understood their argument. I mean, it just the thing I'm interested in is um, Harold, the guy who plays Homer, right? And was a was a real veteran. Mm -hmm. um, he actually lost his hands. He was hired because he lost his hands, and it was a rather bold statement by the filmmakers to hire this guy um, at the end of it, uh, the Academy knew he didn't have a chance of winning a, an award for his performance. So they voted him a special Oscar. <laughs> and then in fact, he won it for the role that he played. So he's the only guy who's ever won 
two Oscars for the same role in the same movie. <laughs> but I would, I'm, I'm, would be, I didn't read his book. And he has written a book and that came out in like 49. Um, I would be interested to know if his attitude uh, had changed um, by the role that he played in the film. Because in the film, you know, he jokes about um, the Navy did a good job of teaching him how to use these hooks. Uh, he went through there not having a problem with his disability. He lights matches. He spoons his own soda, mm -hmm. all that stuff. And um, he finds, he's the hero of the film as far as I'm concerned, but he finds out the difficulty in accepting his um, disability more in other people accepting yeah. it than himself. He's already done the work and he's ready to move on. That's the fascinating part of that character. Yeah. For me. Yeah. In the, and in this scene, that's a really good point because it's, uh, it's Homer who engages with, with the guy Moffat. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a very, you know, it's an icebreaker move. It's hi, you know, instead of, you know, in another day you could say, Hey, you looking at something, but you know, he's like, it's, I think it's his way of saying, yeah, I got these hooks and they're probably weird to you, but Right. I'm, I'm it is a very it. jocular version of saying hi. I noticed that. Yeah, yeah. It's yes. Uh, yeah. Right. It is ice breaking. Yeah. And also inherent in that in a probably two seconds, um the guy says, Hi soldier. Soldier. And <laughs> sailor. Yeah. Corrected instantly, which is the traditional um Rivalry between the services. Right. Mm. <laughs> I th that's an interesting little line, too, because, you know, uh, Harold Russell was actually in the army. Yes. And I wonder if that was just a little a nod to the fact that, nah, Harold really was a, was a GI. <laughs> but, you know, it, I can see where it was important that you have uh, one guy representing every service, basically. Air, ground, and, and sea. So mm -hmm. Sure. It make yeah it would make sense but yeah he's yeah it's it also almost seems like yeah it's it's Homer correcting him you know like, yes. yeah no I was just say you know it's it, yeah this that was how I served yeah but but you're right. right David though I mean he seems to be very calm and at ease as he kind of gives that humorous speech about how he you know got the hooks and stuff like that very right. different Turned from his hands because he didn't like to wash them and manicure his nails that's right. Right. Yeah. But but very different from how it is later in the film, you know, where he, he can barely talk about it to his girlfriend. But here. Yeah. Yeah. A complete stranger. It's it's different. But early yeah. in the film, that tips us off because he says, yeah, yeah, they taught me this and I can do that and I can light my own matches and you ought to see me open a can of beer. Mm -hmm. But I have a girlfriend <laughs> and we know instantly there's the problem. Yeah. Is she going to accept him? Mm hmm. And, I think and that's why they go out drinking, um, because none of them want to face the reality of they're not in the war anymore. Yeah. They're home, and they've got to make the adjustment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's a mark of a very good film that that holds up even today. Yeah, it does. Yeah, no, definitely. Good film. Yeah. yeah. 
Uh, one one of the things that you were mentioning before, you know, his his joke about trading in his hands. Uh, he, he does make a note about you know oh, he traded his hands in for a newer model and they work by radar. And because right. this is a movies by minutes podcast and we can deviate into such things, I'm going to mention a little bit about radar. Uh, so radar itself. Back in 1940, it was really considered a, a pretty new technology. It was developed by the British military in the years leading up to 1940, though it had been kind of around in experiments prior to that. It stands for Radio Detection and Ranging, R-A-D-A-R. And it, uh, it was the really, it was the magic thing that helped the British win the Battle of Britain in 1940. So my question Absolutely, to you, yeah. uh, David, having served on ships and uh, you were a communications officer, did you get to use radar in your Navy days? Oh, yeah. We controlled aircraft with them. Hmm. So what was the, it like? The, the carrier would, um, it was it was fascinating. Hmm. Um, we would, I came in, we were joining a task force of 60 ships one morning, one Saturday morning, I remember. Um in the South China Sea, and we had been somewhere else and were coming in. Um, uh, we and the um, USS Blue, mm. um, one of our um, destroyer shipmates, and we came running in. I set the, the course and speed. We came running in at 35 knots and dropped into position, which was about three miles away from the carrier. And when you're with the carrier, you never turn toward the carrier. Hmm. That scares the hell out of them. <laughs> so you turn, if you're coming and you turn away, if you have to turn 360 degrees, 260 degrees um, to fall into place, that's what you do. You make a turn away from the carrier. Um, but we came in screaming in at 35 knots and fell in. They were going 16 knots, um, dropped in, and we got a flash uh, fairly shortly later from the care saying bravo zulu which is well done um in navy language but um we enjoyed doing all kinds of that and um that wasn't even you know stuff off of vietnam yeah. i mean we went to the um they sent us uh it was called the concord squadron and we went to the uh, indian ocean to do a um a uh, arms sh ship to arms um, transfer and demonstration for the Shah of Iran. Mm -hmm. um, and they sent us to Madagascar and we went to wow. Mombasa, Kenya and in that trip. Um, so it was, wasn't all the time right um, in Vietnam. We did other stuff and mm -hmm. people's uh, people uh, came in and substituted for us uh, while we were often running in other things. Hmm. It was like fa fascinating. I had a great time. I found the guys that had a difficult time with the military uh, fought the system. And you can't fight the system. <laughs> You've got to say, this is going to be three years of my life. I'm just going to give it to them and then get the hell out. Yeah, Might as well enjoy it if you can. Exactly. Yeah, you roll with it. And would you would you find though with your service, you know, this was sort of a joke of sorts, you know, in world, you know, the World War II generation, but you know, guys love to complain about, yes. you know, just the day to day. Maybe it's a way to, you know, just 
shake off boredom, but, um, you know, like was, well, here's an example. Cause, uh, you know, my, my uncle who served in the war and my grandfather, they, you know, they being depression era kids, they thought army chow was great. It's free. Right. And there's as much as you want. You, you know, you can have as much as you want as long as you clean off your plate. Right. And so, but you know, the joke in, you know, in the mess hall is how, you know, the coffee's cold and the chip right. beef on toast, you know, shit on a shingle. <laughs> and, right. um, but my, you know, my uncle and my grandfather contradictors, like, you know what? No, it, it was, it, guys like to complain because it was something to do, but we loved it. <laughs> You gotta have something to complain about, though. Yeah, yeah. You know, the bed is too short, or this or that, or the other thing. There's all kind. They get me up too early, mm. or they don't let me sleep enough, or whatever. That adds the drama to your life. Yeah, there's some interest going on. It can't be all smooth sailing, so yeah. to speak. Yeah. So I'll, yeah, I'll bet you. I'll bet you the coffee on board ship was always hot and probably pretty good. But I'll bet you that was something. Just to gripe about, just to be able, just to do it. Yes. And there were times when we were going through uh, typhoons and bad sea, when we couldn't eat. We couldn't eat, not because we couldn't keep the food down. We couldn't keep because the guys who were cooking it couldn't cook. Oh. They couldn't stand on their feet and cook a meal. Oh, my God. So they'd give us coffee and soda crackers. <laughs> <clears throat> I can't imagine. Not for the whole day, but for a couple of for a couple of uh, hours, where you would expect lunch. No lunch. <laughs> How did you do on uh, those huge swells and stuff like that? Were you able to keep your lunch down most of the time? Yes. <laughs> I never had. I was brought up in Seattle, mm -hmm. so Seattle is surrounded with water. Yeah. We had sailboats when I was growing up. We did have a guy though. Um, who, when the ship got underway, they blow a whistle so that everybody around you understands you are moving. Hmm. Um, and they would blow that whistle and he'd start upchucking. Oh, no. Um, and somebody said to him one time, why don't you just get a, why don't you just take a billet on a carrier? You never know when they're at sea or not. And he said, no, no, no. Destroyers are the, destroyers are the work, work workers of the Navy. And so he wouldn't give it up, hmm. but he got terrible seasickness. Oh. Yeah. I, I don't do very well on cruise ships, let alone yeah. anything small. And cruise ships don't, don't jump up and down. I very know. <laughs> They're uh, they, fairly heavy in the sea, in yeah, the water. Yeah. Yeah. And they have the gyroscopic units to keep exactly. you know, the ship as steady as possible. And so, yeah, I, um, I, this is interesting, David, because, I don't think I've ever talked to anybody who's been through a typhoon mm. and I'm just imagining what a roller coaster ride that must've been, you know, a, a destroyer is a big ship, but in a big ocean and a big typhoon, it's not. So that must've been a hell of a ride. 390 feet long, uh -huh. 44 feet wide. Mm. It rocked and rolled when we were in rough seas. <sighs> Our bridge was 35 feet above water. And I've more than once sat there with green water coming over the bridge. Oh. So that means that you're not just waves. It's green water. It's you're plunging through. Wow. 
Yeah, I mean, in, in a sense, you're riding a 390-foot surfboard. Yes. <laughs> and those the ra radar that you talk to, that's one of the heaviest, that radar, um, big square at the top of the mast, that's the heaviest thing on that mast, and it's going around, and it's pulling you uh, to the left and the right a little bit when the swells are coming. So um, the bigger your mast, the bigger your radar screen, the more you can see, but the more you get knocked around, too. Wow. Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> oh, crazy. Well, um, it looks like we're pretty much at the end of this minute. I think the last thing really to note is that, you know, we, we finally get uh, Mr. Mollett to, to come up, you know, he he's listens to his speech and he tells him that he's got a lot of guts. Uh, we get this very, uh, very stark sort of close-up of Mr. Mollett and uh, we see that American flag pin and that pin is going to sort of play a little bit of a role, uh, you know, as we discuss some of the, uh, the further minutes because it turns out that this is an isolationist and a pretty ardent one. I mean, certainly... Isolationism was was big prior to World War One, and you know then you know things kind of changed over time. What would you say was the I don't know the percentage of of, of isolationists during the the Vietnam time? I mean I know that there were a lot of people who just didn't like the fact that we were we were fighting uh, you know uh, over there, but you know was it more than fifty percent? Would you say? Yeah, hmm. it was, and it was interesting. Um... I had a pretty good relationship with the um, men on the ship mm -hmm. and um, a lot of them came to me for uh, advice and um, that's what you do with a senior officer. Mm. That's the responsibility you have. Um, and we would have talks about it uh, amongst, the, especially amongst the radio men because they heard a lot of information coming in. So they had usually more information than the guys who were working on the engines down below the ship. Um, and they would say, you know, they would come in um, to a man. We had, you know, 20 men in the 20 radio workers, radio men. And they would say, what the hell are we doing here? Why are, why are we in Vietnam? Why are we um, shore bombarding these people? Mm. They want to be communists. Let them be communists. Let's go home. <laughs> um, so it was, um, it was an education. Yeah. Taught me patience, too. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting to, to tie it back to movies. It sounds like on the ship, you, you were a little bit of the Mr. Roberts. You know, you were yeah, a little, little like, bit. Yeah, that's very cool. That's very cool. So you were like, oh, that, that officer's a guy we can talk to. Yes. Hmm. And so that's, and I imagine just, you know, chain of command, too. There's, yeah. You know, no, I was, I was, I was approachable. I, that's, that's just, it's kind of how I left, how I, and I've, I've known officers and seen officers who were not approachable. Um, that just wasn't the kind of guy that I was brought up to be. But David, what did you, t what did you tell them when they asked these type of questions? How do you respond to that? Um, you respond, the president told us to go here. Hmm. You know, we're following orders. Yeah. I can't tell you what we're doing here. Somebody must have an answer, um, but I'm not the one. 
And actually, um, by not getting up and pontificating or anything like that, it just um, brings you down to their level saying, you know, we're all in this together. Yeah. I don't know what we're doing here. Hmm. So here's a question for you, because, you know, you've, you've been an actor for decades. <laughs> since i was seven since you were seven there you go so did you did in your naval training was there anything that has helped your your career as an actor that you you know oh yeah patience is one of them ah okay yeah it's interesting i did a i did a film called um they only kill their masters james garner um, and uh, in the cast was um, Hal Holbrook. And Hal and I got to be close. And um, I was playing a deputy. And um, we had a, sh a scene where he got shot. Mm -hmm. And he said, I want you to run behind me and hit me, hit my shoulder um, when, when I tell you to. Um, and just give me that feeling of what, you know, the, the brunt of the shot of a gun would do to me physically when I was running up a hill. And so I did it. And we were talking, having lunch one time. And he said, the greatest lesson I ever had as an actor, he said, I was doing um, Mark Twain, solo one man show right. on Broadway. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And he got word, he was, his parents were killed early in his life. Mm. And he was raised by an aunt and uncle in the same town, I think in Indiana, someplace like that. But he got word that his um, aunt was uh, dying. And so he went on to the performance, booked a plate to New York, uh, out of New York, um, raced to the airport, got on the plane, um, got there, ran to the, ran, uh, got a car to the hospital and, he missed her by about 15 minutes. Oh. Yeah. And this was a woman that really basically raised him. Mm. And he said, uh, I went back to the house. It always seemed much smaller than it does when you're growing up. Mm. And he said, I walked through the rooms. And he said, that experience sent me to therapy for a couple of years. Oh. Because as I was boohooing and vomiting out my guts emotionally, this little voice in the back of my head say, watch what you're doing. Remember, you can use this. Um, and the acting had so permeated him that he couldn't just let go and go. That little barometer in there said, keep this, you can use that. And he said it, it it sent him into therapy because how could he ignore all this wonderful um, brilliance that she gave him, uh, even to be an actor, um, with this little, and he couldn't let it all go and just and just grieve for her. Hmm. So there's a lot of everything that I do. There's that little eye there saying, be careful, watch this. Mm. Don't do that. Do that. Explore that. Very good. All great stuff. And uh, I think I'm just going to wrap up this minute on that. 
you can find the Best Minute Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play, or at the main site, thebestminutes.com. Social media is available at Butch's Place, the Best Years of Our Lives Listeners Cafe on Facebook, and on Twitter at The Best Minutes. And uh, we're Friday, so we get to say, by the way, if you like these Movies by Minutes podcasts, be sure to check out moviesbyminutes.com, where you'll find over 170 titles covered using this minute-by-minute format, uh, including Five Minutes of Trouble and Five Minutes of Bonsai. We kind of cheat. We do a five-minute format, but it's still a Movies by Minute <laughs> podcast. Uh, so, yeah, uh, David, thank you very much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thank you. What do you think of uh, being on podcast? I think it's great. Yeah. I'm very excited to do this and to experience this, and I thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a blast. Thank you very much. And uh, that will end it for this week. Join us again on Monday for The Best Minute. Joe, you better hurry up out there because she's taking off soon. Right, thanks. Come on, Taylor.